welcome to the Northwestern Master of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Lynn. And I'm Adam Grossman. Adam, it's good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you as well. I do love these little interludes. You know, for the listeners, we take a little break from some of the guests, the great guests we've had over the course of this season. And Adam and I wanted to banter about for the few things from sports and sports business that have been you know, top of mind and more relevant in the news lately. And we'll be back to guests in the coming weeks. But how have things been, Adam? Things are good. I've been busy and, you know, we're going to talk about some of the ways that we've been busy at, at Excel and the stuff that I'm doing. But yeah, busy and excited to talk about why we're busy. So how about you? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, same. I mean, I think that it's really interesting. You talked about some of the news that you had, you know, and these, I, I really enjoy reading the content that you put out and all the different ways that you're doing from Excel and how you've parlayed that into many different avenues. But other than that, all, all good. Hoping that summer really comes back here sometime soon. But you know, good parlay from from what you said. And if we take a step back, I think for listeners and actually for myself too, you know, Adam and I have known each other for a long time and Adam built Block, Block 6 Analytics from, from the ground up originally and, and some really interesting stuff done there. And then with the partnership with Excel and what you've been doing, I think the question that I have and for the listeners is if you take a more macro level view from Excel, what Excel does overall, and then sort of your piece inside of there and how you fit, that'd be really helpful for us to understand the lay of the land there. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think really helpful for the other parts of the conversation as well. So Excel Sports Management is what would be considered like a full service sports agency. Excel, other agencies have similar, but maybe not exactly the same verticals, but Excel primarily has four verticals and then kind of multiple divisions within those verticals. There's what is called talent, there's properties, there's brand marketing, and there's content. Talent, from our perspective, is primarily player representation. So Excel is, by contract value, the largest basketball, second largest baseball, and largest golf agency in the world. So Excel represents now NBA champions, Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray, among many other players, Baseball-wise, most famously Derek Jeter, but also several other current um, players and particularly all-star global players like Clayton or players that have been all-stars like Clayton Kershaw, Kyle Schwarber. And then on the golf side, most famously Tiger Woods, but Tiger Woods, Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas, Justin Rose. So that was originally, so the founders of Excel, particularly the primary founder, Jeff Schwartz, uh, he started as a, a basketball agency, added on Casey Close, who's a, a lead baseball agent, and then Mark Steinberg, who was Tiger, Tiger's agent, and they formed the, the genesis of Excel, and it's kind of grown out from there. One of the, the ways that it first grew out was establishing a brand marketing division. So brand marketing helps companies navigate the sports space primarily through corporate partnerships and sponsorships. And then the property side helps teams, leagues, events, sell their, help sell their primary assets and most important assets. You can think of like naming rights deals, Jersey patch deals, foundational partnerships. And then on the content side, creating content, particularly athlete driven content, but content more generally. Um, So the Derek Jeter, Derek Jeter documentary that was on ESPN recently was an Excel media production. So Excel also represents a lot of media commentators as well. So that's part of the talent vertical. So, and then there's a lot of other businesses. So what Excel Analytics does, it it supports efforts from a numbers and data perspective across all of those different verticals. So, you know, working with talent to understand the value of players to teams and to brands, working with, you know, on the brand marketing side to help them determine the value of their partnerships across the spectrum, across multiple types of different activations. So you can think of that as like, 
is something happening in the venue is something happening in media is something happening you know is a partnership being activated in you know maybe more traditional media which is like television radio versus newer media particularly with a focus on, on digital mobile and increasingly you know augmented reality virtual reality or even generative ai activations then you think of hospitality events intellectual property those are all things that are being considered by brand marketing clients on the property side understanding the value of the property and partnership assets we do less work on the content side but it's understanding like what could you know if we're looking at potentially how an athlete can help drive a content series or why should a media company these aren't necessarily the only media companies but like espn netflix apple amazon why should we work with excel with some data and information particularly around athletes that show how they can resonate with the public and potentially increase viewership numbers because people are interested in the content being produced by excel media and those athletes it's really interesting because we often think the lay sports fan, and I think a lot of our listeners think of athlete representation as an agent that represents the athlete in contract negotiations. And there's so much more that happens inside of that, of all the pieces that you just talked about and the interplay between all of them. So it's really interesting to see, and really it seems beneficial to an athlete or to a brand or to a team and lead to have that full breadth of services that are there. But inside of that, all the pieces that you deal with and the, the pieces that came from Block 6 Analytics fall inside that Excel Analytics vertical. Is that correct? That's right. So it's the idea is that Excel Analytics, you know, if Excel wants to leverage what we build from a product, so we build some proprietary products that leverage machine learning, particularly computer vision, which is function or essentially like teaching a computer how to see and look for logos and video, natural language processing in two pretty much use cases which one is social media listening. So saying like how much conversation is happening, how is that conversation positive or negative? And then the third element of net that we think about is from an audience perspective. So we developed a pro proprietary product that basically can take what people say in text and convert that into who they are from six demographic attributes perspective in a statistically robust way. So Excel then, those there are different applications that you can use from the core products that we've developed. You know, we've started from valuing sports partnerships, whether for buyers or sellers. So whether from the brand side or from the property side, and then, you know, then we've created other use cases, looking at college sports, looking at NIL, looking at media rights, looking at multimedia rights from a college sports perspective. So there's a lot of different applications that we have and we've, and then we have built revenue about replacement, which I explained in an earlier podcast is our primary way of looking at talent and creating novel models for talent analysis and valuation as well. It's really cool. I think it's really interesting to see that sponsorship and the valuation piece is so valuable to all sides of that equation to be able to put hard numbers around that and metrics around it. And you mentioned some of those proprietary pieces that come out of Excel Analytics, and they've had some news recently around what Excel is doing in that space with new metrics that you've rolled out. And so could you talk a little bit more about those new things that you've seen and the genesis of them and, and why their impact would be? Yeah. So one of our novel product offerings that we just released, officially released, although we had been using in beta versions earlier, is called our Revenue Impact Model. Our revenue impact model is a multiple regression model that leverages the tools that we've developed or internal tools that we've developed to determine a correlation or association between factors that we've identified in revenue generation. So the idea is that partnerships impact specific factors 
specific factors or, you know, if you do well on these specific factors, you would expect to see a certain amount of revenue generation. It's not a causal model. It's not necessarily saying that if you do this, then you will generate revenue. It's an association model, which is what all, or typically what, when you're talking about these types of models, you're looking at what is called the R squared and R squared is a measure of correlation and it shows the strength of the correlation, which is an association. So essentially what that means is that if you are looking at the, essentially the inputs and the outputs, do they move, how frequently do the inputs based on the factors you've identified? So models generally, particularly regression models, we're talking about linear regression models, have four main components, which are independent variables, dependent variables, coefficients, and then a y-intercept. So the independent variable is the thing that you are testing. So what we found is that organic reach basically are people organically talking about the partnership and the company, either together or separately. Uh, Brand sentiment, how positive or negative is that correlation, or how positive or negative is that conversation? And then audience fit. So based on these demographic uh, audience attributes, are the audiences, are you targeting the audiences that are valuable to companies? So those would be the independent variables. The dependent variable would be the revenue. So like how does changes in those factors impact revenue. What we found is that changes in those factors impact revenue. The coefficients are the weight. So how much do those individual factors impact revenue generation? They don't impact it equally. And the coefficients are designed to create the right weights that essentially minimizes what is called the sum of square or minimize the error. So essentially you want to have it as close as possible to say what you predicted to have or what you the model said happen based off the coefficients and compare that to what actually happens. And you're trying to reduce the error rate across all your observations. So we found that our model had collectively had a strong and statistically significant correlation to revenue generation across those factors. And the R squared was a strong value in our in our case over a point six or it goes from zero to one with one being the strongest, zero being the, the weakest, you typically want to have at least over a 0.6 and ours was at a point, you know, 0.645. So it's a strong correlation between those factors. It doesn't mean that every company, you know, this is a model that is built off of looking at holistic, like, you know, statistics in this kind of format is looking at large data sets and saying, you know, across large data sets, this is what essentially you would expect to have happen looking at a variety of different companies and a variety of different industries across a variety of different, in our case, millions of data points. That doesn't mean for every company it will be perfect, but it's saying over you know large data sets, you should see a correlation between these variables and revenue. So we had used that previously across multiple with multiple property clients from our perspective. In particular, one of the use cases we featured was with the Boston Bruins and Rapid Seven. Boston the Rapid Seven is now the Jersey Patch partner of the Boston Bruins. And as part of the sales process, we showed Rapid Seven, you know, what would they expect the revenue generation to be for their partnership based off of the factors we've identified. Rapid Seven has subsequently hired us to, once they became the Jersey Patch partner, to then value the Jersey Patch um, from their perspective, leveraging the, the revenue impact model in addition to our core corporate asset valuation model. It's really interesting you bring that up. I was actually going to ask about use cases. You were quoted in a piece from Excel around, and it was really talking about the Jersey patch model. And I think it's a really interesting use case there. 
because again, the newness of it. But if you extend that out, the piece talked about things like naming rights. Are there other logical use cases that you see in the market today? Or is it something that can be applied to things that you've done in the past? Or what are the sort of the, the new use cases that it opens up? Yeah, I think you can use it both. And when you talk about it, it is definitely good to look at from a historical perspective. So in models, this isn't the only type, but you know, you can think of models typically as descriptive or predictive, right? Are they describing what happened or are they trying to predict what's happening in the future? Our model is based off of historical or descriptive data. That being said, you, one of the use cases we do use is we talk about with Rapid7 is here's how historically a similar partnership performed. And here's what we, you know, based on what how it performed in the past, this was the output of what the revenue generation, you know, the revenue impact would be based off how a similar model performed in the past. Our model does not know it's necessarily doing this for sports sponsorship or sports partnerships. It could be applied theoretically to any kind of marketing or advertising partnership. The, the challenge is how do you isolate the content, particularly so the, the primary content we look at from an organic conversation perspective is across digital and social media. So the challenge is like when you're talking about the Bruins and Rapid7 is how do you only find content that is Rapid7 and Bruins oriented? So you have to use what's called a Boolean search string, which is commonly used for these types of queries, which is leveraging combinations of and or not to make sure that you isolate as best as you possibly can the content around the Bruins and Rapid7 and then use that as the foundation for analyzing value. But from our perspective, this type of approach can be used in multiple use cases. And we've, you know, we we focus on the revenue impact model, but we use a similar approach across our media rights analysis and what we've done from a media rights perspective. We use a similar approach, but as part of our off-court player valuation analysis, we use a similar approach in our multimedia rights modeling that we put together. So there's a bunch of different potential use cases across Excel that we can use. It's not one-to-one the same, but there are similarities across that because ultimately that's one of the key questions that any company asks when it comes to partnership marketing, but also marketing more generally is, is this marketing helping me to generate revenue? And typically there hasn't necessarily been a clear answer. And from our perspective, this isn't necessarily the only or perfect answer, but it is an answer that uses large amounts of data and large data sets to show you like, this is what we would expect an impact of a partnership or marketing you know, marketing or advertising opportunity to be based off the information that has a known association with revenue. You mentioned too in your quote, you talked about maximizing properties, revenue growth, but then also shortening decision timelines. I think that part of that is really interesting because you often see from a sales cycle perspective, from a decision cycle perspective, the larger the organizations, especially in sports too, those decision timeframes can be long based on lots of different factors. And I think anything that you can do to shorten those timeframes is always good, but why does this model and how does this model help in shortening those decision timeframes? Yeah, I think because it answers the core question that's being asked, which is, is this partnership going to help me generate revenue and how much could we, you know, potentially expect from that? And this model directly, you know, a lot of companies have a hard time. Rightfully, it's not an easy challenge to solve or an easy problem to tackle. And that's typically, if they don't know that, they try to figure it out themselves and they have to start from scratch to figure out that information or they would hire companies to try to help if they can't create their own internal kind of models to do that, this eliminates that as an issue. So our goal, or potentially, I should say potentially eliminates that as an issue. It says, here's the data, here's the data that we used, here's all the information we used, here's how we came up with the calculation. 
So if you combine the revenue impact with more more traditional brand impact metrics, and you can say, you know, we can look at things holistically across the marketing funnel to determine the impact. And you do that as the property for the brand. So they have the information that they need to go back to their either CEO, CFO, CMO, board of directors, senior decision makers. You give them the answers to the test so they don't have to study for it themselves. Then it makes decision times faster. This may sound like a dumb question, but you talked about how you have millions of data points in this model and the great work that you've done from an analytics perspective, tons of data points to help you get to those answers and boil these things down. But if you look back historically, how do people value these things? Was it a very much finger in the air? Hey, this is what a sponsorship really costs or what value you can bring? Because it's so interesting to me how much legwork has been done and how much technology is behind this to really boil those down to things that are digestible. But it seems very difficult to be able to do without that level of technology and all the models that you've put in place. Yeah, I appreciate you saying it's digestible. I'm not (laughs) sure. Everybody always agrees with that, but particularly when you're trying to explain how a model works. But so traditionally, like there has been a lot of, I would say traditionally there are four approaches to valuation. A common one still today is the finger in the air, like kind of what do I think it is worth? Not the most common, that has become definitely less common over time. But that was, you know, one way that it started. Probably the most common version of this is what would be called a comparable valuation, essentially, what are other people paying for this? That is that is still used a lot today is like, what is the market pricing at this? And for good reason, right? Obviously, people want to know what people are paying the market. What people, and I'll get back to this, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of value that typically comes from market pricing. And I'll just, I guess I'll just talk about it now, is that people are saying, you know, what is the value of something? It's what something's willing, you know, what somebody wants to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That is, there's literally not true. I mean, like that mm-hmm. is what, there's a, a a definition and a formula for value, which is willingness to pay minus price equals value. So the price is one of those components, but it's not the only component of value, right? If you're, you get value when you pay less than you would have been willing to pay for something. So right. let's say you were willing to pay, you know, you know, whatever, a million dollars for something, and you only have to pay, you know, $500,000 for something, the value of that asset is not $500,000, it's arguably a million dollars, because you're willing to pay more than that, but the customer is getting $500,000 worth of value. So that there's a fundamental miscalculation of value from that perspective. But that, again, you, knowing what other people pay is a good like the price is important, but the price is not the value in a literal definition of value. Then, so we talk about finger in the air, then comparable. And then the main one, if you were to say when numbers came into place is what's called a relative valuation, which is you use some kind of fraction or equation to determine value. The most commonly used relative valuation in media advertising and sponsorship is called CPM. So cost per thousand impressions. You look to say, what are the number of the impressions that are created? How much does it, so you look and say like, how much do things cost? Like on a per, well, you look at the number of impressions that are created. You say, how much does it cost for those impressions? And there are standard standard advertising units based off a thousand per impression. So the literal formula is what is the cost divided by the number of impressions divided by a thousand? So like that's the literal formula. And that's a relative valuation is very common in asset valuation. If you think about it from a, the most commonly thought of asset, particularly from a financial perspective, is a stock. 
the most commonly used ratio is a price to earning ratio. So what is the price of the stock based on how much the company earns in an, you know, typically in an annualized basis. So that's a very common ratio that's used in stocks as the common one that's used in advertising is a cost per thousand impression. When I started a company, my essential insight was, well, you actually should be using what's called an inherent valuation and not a relative or comparable or finger in the air valuation. An inherent valuation says assets are worth different things to different companies. So we, an example I typically use is Under Armour and Citibank have both been clients of what was Block 6 and now Excel Analytics. If Under Armour builds a factory, they can make you know apparel. What is Citibank going to do with a factory? Nothing. In terms of its core business, it's a financial, obviously it's a financial services, financial products company. You don't need a factory for that to work. So a factory has substantially more valuable to Under Armour than it does for Citibank. So like why, when you're talking about partnerships, different companies have different revenue and brand objectives. Why would impressions have the same value to the same company if they have different business models and different goals? So that was the impetus for me to start Block 6 Analytics is I there is what's called a discounted cash flow model that in finance that looks at how do assets like factories generate free cash flow, or you can think of it for the sake of simplicity in this, like how does it generate profits for companies? It's not exactly that. There's a lot of accounting, but just how does it generate cash for companies? So different assets can generate different levels of cash flows for different companies. And so assets should be valued differently. And there's a lot of other machinations behind it, but that's the idea. So I then I, I decided while sponsorships and partnerships, the individual components of them are called assets. Discounted cash flow model is an asset-based valuation model. There had never been a model like that applied to partnership assets. So that was what I originally did to change the dynamic. And then we subsequently built a lot more on top of that. But that's that's how it came into being. Technology has helped with that substantially in terms of being able to do more closer to an inherent valuation model and kind of the stuff that we built. And then mm -hmm. some of the modeling stuff and the data partners that we work with, their development of their data sets and their technology, all of that has come together to, for us to create what we would consider to be the most accurate valuations in, in sports. It's so fascinating, all the, the components that go into that, all the different knobs and levers that are there. And I think it provides enormous value for both sides of the equation to have that transparency in. And I think that's really important. You had a really good piece in your weekly newsletter recently around organic content, which you can see is how that could be part of this metric or how it's weaved into this metric. It was your piece was around the Titans and how that organic content helps with driving that engagement. Did you see that from that organic content and driving that engagement? And what did you see? What stood out to you from the Titans perspective here around that content that they created? Well, I should I should say I did not originally see this video. My one of my best friends who lives in Nashville and is a Titans fan sent it to me, and from that I've created that the content around that. But I already created the, the post around that, so I should give him credit before I talk about the analysis. There's an enormous uh, amount of buzz in Nashville, and that's my wife went to undergrad at Vanderbilt and keeps on the pulse with those things. And there's a lot of excitement around that stadium and how the Titans are continuing to evolve. And it's a city that in the last few years has because of the mobility of folks as the population has grown. And so I can see it certainly growing into a, a much more on the map sports city for sure. Yeah. And the, he has been a long time sports fan. He actually helped originally 
not originally, he helped with the creation of the book that I authored, The Sports Strategist. He helped to do some of the research for that book, particularly for some of the case studies that we created. He's a longtime sports fan, but you're absolutely right. Nashville is a large and, and growing sports city, including having an Excel, the MLS team. SC Nashville worked with Excel on its naming rights for Geotis Park, which is the name of the mm-hmm. soccer stadium. So definitely a large and growing play sports community. What we what he sent over was a so the NFL has every year creates a lot of or generates a lot of excitement around the schedule release. And while the opponents are known, each team's opponents are known, the dates and times of those opponents are not known until the schedule release. And there's important things that come from that besides, you know, certainly like season ticket sales are based around, you know, you can't really sell tickets to games until you know exactly when the games are going to occur. It helps from like a, a television scheduling perspective, knowing the dates and times, and then knowing the television schedule is really important, obviously for fans. And then also from like a partnership, knowing the times can shape partnership activation strategy. But so there's been a lot of buildup and the NFL, and we talked about this a little bit before we jumped on, the NFL has done a good job in creating, you know, the season pretty much the regular season occurs from September through the first week of January or second week of January primarily, but, and then there's playoffs, but the NFL has done a good job of creating opportunities for content throughout the year, whether it's through the, originally through the NFL draft or mini camps or training camps or preseason games. One other thing that they've developed is this schedule and this kind of buzz around the schedule release and teams spend a lot of time, energy, effort, and resources creating very well-produced schedule release videos. What the Titans ended up doing, one of the things that ended up being kind of emerging from their internal conversations about how to do the schedule release is somebody came up with the idea, well, not everybody finds the schedule release to be that interesting or exciting. And like, maybe we can show, you know, if we can have a sense of humor about it, that while this is important to some people, it's not important to all of our fans. And that if we could you know, and one of the things we are explicitly trying to do is reach new audiences, particularly younger demographics, diverse demographics, particularly from, in this case, there were a lot of, in the video itself, there were a lot of women in the video. So reaching particularly non-male audiences is something that was important to the Titans. And then also, you know, creating content that would be native originally on TikTok, but then it ended up blowing up on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And the idea was the Titans kind of let people, so they came up and they asked the Titans, they would show the logo that, that of the helmet of the t- that the team would play and ask people on Broadway, which is, if you're familiar with Nashville, is a, is a fun area almost at any time of day, but there are a lot of bars, restaurants, that's a lot of music happens around there. So it's just a fun area to be in. And there might've been some people who are partaking in that fun while they were on these videos, but they showed the helmet logos and they asked the team to say, what, who was the, the, the opponent of the Titans? And the people came up either. They had no idea. They didn't know who it was. They came up with fake names and there was a lot of, and then the Titans kind of then augmented it with a little bit of production value using, I believe like the Monday night football kind of backdrop to augment those responses. So people like my friend who shared it with me ended up sharing it. So the the schedule release video, it was something, the exact numbers are in the article, but it was something like a six, 60 times more impressions happened for the what they called the B-side than, than the A-side video. And it was just, again, the, the Titans were able to do that because they could, you know, they weren't taking, they take this very seriously, but clearly they understood their fans didn't always take it that seriously and creating kind of content that fit natively into TikTok, where these audiences particularly liked it, created a content multiplying effect 
uh, increase the reach. And then to your point about how this is connected. So organic reach is different than is a different definition than potentially reach more generally, where like, you know, you can buy reach or you can buy impressions or you can say in a variety of different channels, whether it's if you're buying a Twitter ad or you're buying a Facebook ad or you're buying it, you know, even an ad on TikTok, you can say we want a certain number of impressions that we're guaranteeing. And you could have, usually there's hashtag ad or there's specific hashtags that you look at that it's an ad versus this is this, the Titans just said, here's a piece of content we created. It's organic. And that does typically organic that's both organic, organically created, but also has a good fit for the platform. And we do find consistently that that kind of content performs well. And that kind of content, if it was branded, which in this case it wasn't, like would potentially drive significantly more value from a partnership perspective as well. Because people, you know, you're not talking about it to people. People are talking about the content, which has more economic value in our model. There's a great one in there where one of the people that they asked thought that the Falcons was the the Red Stallions or something like that. I think it's a really cool example of how two things. One, you talk about that organic content created organically in that sense, but then grows organically through word of mouth, through people engaging with it. And then the topic doesn't necessarily then become the schedule. It becomes the content of that video, but it all kind of has full circle because the Titans are at the center of that, right? They're at that center of that conversation. And like you said, you had the numbers in there, but across Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, staggering numbers of impressions generated from that content. I think it too also goes a long way into bringing in the lay fan, the casual fan, because that content is more engaging in those things. And I think that, you know, those are, are in essence, right, that the hardcore fan you're going to capture regardless of most things, but capturing that more casual fan is, is extremely important in that. Yeah, and particularly around a schedule release, like the casual fan is not necessarily that interested in the schedule release, but the hardcore fans are, and, and they do, and, you know, it does... Often it is a, a popular topic on even mass media, so to speak, like ESPN, Fox, they'll talk about the schedule release. But again, the idea is exactly what you just said. It's like, this is content that people just, you know, organically found funny, interest, you know, compelling, interesting, and something that, you know, the Titans, so to speak, allowed to have happened, even though, you know, humor is always a, can be a risky kind of endeavor, but, you know, it's usually humor works well when it's organic and you're, you know, you're not trying, this is just what people were saying. We're not making fun of them. We're just saying, isn't it funny that this is what they said? And the other thing that was interesting, and I think is applicable to our audience specifically is this did come from like, you know, the, we had the chief marketing officer featured in the article of the Titans, Gil Beverly, but he went out of his way to say like, this was this happened because somebody and particularly younger demographics or people we had, you know, more junior employees came up with the idea and we let them run with it. But we didn't come up with this idea as like the chief marketing officer didn't say from a top down approach, this was a bottom up approach and somebody wanted to pursue it and they put in the time to do it. And I think increasingly, particularly when you're talking about new technology platforms, I think most people at the CMO level, still think of TikTok as a maybe a newer or emerging technology platform. Like that is something where teams are specifically looking for people who are organic users of those platforms to create content that natively fits in with those platforms. It's an opportunity for, you know, if you have metrics that show why this is valuable, it gives younger people and recent graduates of our program or students in our program the ability to show like, here are metrics that show why this is worthwhile for us to pursue. And here's kind of other content or other ideas. And it's good for 
our students, but it's also good for our students to know that like these are things that sports organizations are thinking about. And not every sports, you know, not every team league or athlete or event or agency, but increasingly there are more opportunities for younger, you know, more junior employees to have substantial impact on their organizations as well. Yeah. And as you continue to see things like this, not only the the impact, but the reach and just for lack of a better term, the coolness factor in that, I think that will only continue to grow because it's one of those things that you're seeing the value in it. And it's because of things from and the analytics that you provide, you can have more view into that now, which I think is a really great part. Adam, there's a lot of great content that you have out there. There's some things that are coming in the coming weeks that you'd want to highlight. Yeah, I think what we're going to have the next upcoming piece of content is focused around the Mabdala City Open, which is the first tennis tournament that has both a men's and women's eight 500 level kind of professional tournament, which is the highest level outside of like majors and, and specifically sanctioned ATP masters and championship events. Um, that's happening in DC at the end, of, I believe at the end of July or near the end of July. And it, it, you know, one of the contentions, rightfully, from a women's sports perspective, is that women's sports often don't have the same platform as men's sports. Well, here's an event that's specifically putting those together. So, what does that look like from an impact perspective? So, uh, that should be coming out soon. And then we're, I think we have, like you were mentioning, some new podcasts with some really interesting topics that will be coming out soon. So, we'd say stay tuned. We got some really good content as we're getting towards the end of our current season. Yeah, as Adam said, we're getting toward the end of the current season and, and look for those continued pieces that Adam writes on, on a weekly basis and some upcoming episodes that we have around some similar topics that we talked about today. And we'll expand upon those, some things that we didn't hit on today, like AR and VR and, and how that continues to evolve and is rolled into the media consumption. But as always, it's, it's great to see Adam and great to catch up. And, and we hope that the you know more content to come for the list, listeners in the coming weeks. So great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks for the questions. And yeah, looking forward to closing up the season on a strong note. Thanks, Adam. Thank you.